I just got tired of the narrative that a STEM profession wasn't for me, or, or at that time, a STEM major wasn't for me. So personally, I had to prove that I could be successful and I graduated with honors. And so for my students, I take that same passion. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, AOTA family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This is my 17th year in the classroom, working down here in the Los Angeles area. And this, of course, is all the above, your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. We wanna extend a very warm welcome to those of you who have recently joined the AOTA family. Perhaps you tuned in a few episodes ago when, when Megan Surreal was on, and I know a lot of, lot of folks really loved hearing what she had to say about teacher advocacy, especially for our little elementary kiddos in the in the midst of this reopening pandemic, maybe ending, maybe not type of type of era. So welcome to all of the above. We are glad you are here. Jeff, I noticed you're you are wearing a, a very um springtime fresh <laughs> lavender shirt. I don't think you've worn lavender on this show before. Looking springtime fresh for this springtime episode, man. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I figured um, today that the day that we are filming this episode, at least, I believe is the uh, the equinox. Is that it? It's the it's the day when we get 12, uh, 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of uh, of nighttime. Is it? Yeah, uh, so I so I think that's what the word is. I should have probably paid closer attention in uh, Earth science back in the day. But uh, <laughs> but um, it's a it's a remarkable day in terms of the season. So I figured, you know. Let's break out the purple, see what happens. So, um, you know, I I normally stick hardcore to my blue shirt theme in life, Manuel. So this is a you do. momentous momentous occasion for <laughs> from for my wardrobe choices. Okay. Yeah, this is actually this. You are correct. This is big for those who actually watch our show, the video version of it. You know, we know a lot of y'all um, listen to the the audio version as you you know commute and do your thing. But uh, those of you who actually watch the video version, if you go through our sixty seven other episodes i think jeff you've worn blue just about in every single one if not every single one maybe you've worn white there's, once there's or twice a, there's I don't a couple know, of but... grays there's a couple of gray silvers in there are there okay uh, <laughs> on occasion okay yeah, but um you know in general manuel my i am trying to aspire to uh to a cornell west way of life he is my wardrobe inspiration i just want to have one outfit man that i can rock like to everything (laughs) so so i just wear different kinds of blue shirts it's uh you know it's a thing all right all right for sure for sure well Jeff, man, there's obviously a lot going on in education, always is, and that's why we are here on All the Above to take a look at recent headlines and also have bigger conversations about ongoing issues in education. So Jeff, what are we gonna gonna look at? What's on the agenda for today? Well, man, well, as usual, we got a good one for everybody today, and uh, we're gonna dive into a topic that we we haven't actually touched on in, in a while. I think it's been a couple of years since we've really dedicated a seminar. Um, to this to this subject, but we are bringing on a fascinating educator um, out of the state of New Mexico, Miss Kaya Brown, 
who is uh, going to, to help us explore this topic around STEM education and, and in particular expanding opportunities for STEM education for many of our nation's most marginalized students, including many of our students of color and low income students. And especially in this day and age where, you know, we all have become, you know, sort of much more immersed in digital technology at school and at work, um, you know, the, the implications in terms of long-term career trajectory for young people, um, you know, the growth of, uh, of STEM fields as a, as a sector of our economy and as a place of opportunity for, for our students to not only be consumers, but also, you know, contributors and creators. Um, you know, is a, is a fascinating topic. So um, we have Kaya Brown coming on. We're going to explore this topic today. She's a middle school um, computer science teacher out in New Mexico. So it's going to be interesting. You definitely don't want to miss it. Dope. Middle school computer science. That, that's awesome. That beats the, the wood shop that I had in middle school. Although I, <laughs> I did enjoy wood shop. I still have, I have a couple of those pieces somewhere around here. But uh yeah, dope. Looking forward to this conversation for sure. But folks, up first is our Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how do you want to do the Do Now today? Well, man, well, today, uh, you know, it is time to issue some some grades, folks. We got a report card. We're going to let the uh, parents out there know how uh, some institutions in our profession are doing. All right. Report card time. Jeff, if I'm not mistaken, this is this might be like the one year anniversary of Give Them All A's. I got to check the date mm. on that. I mm. believe that I believe that started late March. Yep, that, that sounds uh, about right to me. And um, caught on like like wildfire out there in the uh, social social media world, and um, you know an important contribution from one Dr. Manuel Rustin to um, to our nation's um, somewhat troubling conversation about grades uh, in the midst of a pandemic. Even though in that moment, I think we were probably still in the delusional phase, right? Of like, oh, it'll just be, you know, like mid-April, we'll be back, you know, like just a few more weeks, it'll be over, right? Uh, just, I think wow, Trump I don't, told us I don't when, even want to relive those days, man. That was, uh, oh man. Yes, you are right. Yeah. We were uh, a bit delusional perhaps about uh, just how long this thing was going to last. And I remember... This has nothing to do with today's do now, but I do remember <laughs> reading uh, one report talking about like it could take 18 months. I remember thinking like, that's ridiculous. No way this will take 18 months. And here we are 12 months later and, you know, we still have a little ways to go. Yeah, indeed we do. Indeed Anyways, we do. I have been asked by folks like, are you still on that give them all A's mindset? So I guess we're about to find out right now, Jeff. What do mm. we have? What's our first grade mm. today? Well, uh, you, you're going to be very disappointed in us, Matt. Well, because because uh, we got a straight up F. Although it's you know it's kind of a fun F. Uh, it's an F for FAFSA, uh, which is an often mispronounced word. Yeah, it's you said FAFSA. it right. I never say FAFSA. it right. Good it's job. It's the FAFSA. FAFSA. Stupidly hard to say acronym that is the free application for federal student aid, which kind of makes me think. 
did it used to cost money? Like, did they have to tell us that it was free? If I had to pay to apply to financial aid, that is that true. Is, that might be like the most American thing ever, actually. <laughs> so, um, yes, uh, we got some interesting news about the FAFSA and what that perhaps means uh, for prospects for college enrollment for our students, particularly those folks who um, kind of transitioned from high school to college uh, during that pandemic time last spring. So so let's get into this story here, Manuel. Um, this is from Kevin Mankin, uh, written up in LA School Report. So shout out to Kevin. And uh, new research examining changes in California's FAFSA applications during the COVID-19 crisis shows a sizable decline in applications for university financial aid during the first phases of the COVID-19 pandemic back in the spring of 2020. The report published in Educational Researcher by University of Missouri professors Oded Garantz and Christopher Wilga, hopefully I got those names right, showed that in the spring last year, California saw a year-over-year -year decrease of over 350,000 returning students renewing their FAFSA aid applications. Um, apps from incoming freshmen dropped steeply at the same time as well. Among self-identifying freshmen, applications sank by 7%, and among those with some college experience, and a remarkable 21% among those with no college experience. Mankin's article points out that these findings depart from patterns seen during previous times of uncertainty. Traditionally, contractions in the job market usually lead to more people. Uh, to pursue education as a means of honing their professional skills and waiting out the tough times. But the disruptions imposed by COVID-19 have upended the familiar college experience in ways that administrators and industry leaders have really struggled to address. These declines, of course, as is always the case, are particularly acute in low-income neighborhoods and those with higher populations of people of color. So, Manuel, um, you know, we saw this trend last spring, very alarming in the moment of kind of steep declines uh, of folks applying for financial aid, which usually means steep declines in students actually going to school, because it's not like a bunch of kids and families got rich last March, right? So, um, you know, this could be concerning, but also, you know, maybe there's some, some complexity here and seeing some rebounding of this data over time. What say you about this issue, Manuel? Yeah, well, first, I just want to shout out that you pronounce it correctly. I do not pronounce it correctly. I am definitely <laughs> team FAFSA, like team FAFSA all the way. That's just how it was raised, Jeff. And yeah, I mean, I guess I'm you know, not surprised to begin with. I'm not surprised that these numbers went down during the pandemic. I think the whole world was so upended that we're going to see disruptions in pretty much any measure that you look at from that time period. And in terms of the long-term effects, I think we still don't quite know. Some of these application numbers have, have rebounded a bit with the upper grades, um, college juniors and college seniors, but they haven't really shown much rebound yet for uh, the first year college goers. So that's a bit concerning. And we just don't know yet, I think. We just don't know, and it's gonna take some time to really get a handle on how many folks would have gone to college, but changed their mind because of their pandemic experience and because of the impact that the pandemic had. And how many folks who changed their mind, then when things settle, decide, okay, now I'm ready to start my college journey. So I think it's gonna take some time to really figure that out. Me, I'm kind of curious how many students who are leaving high school really just 
honestly decided that college is not going to be for them because look what this pandemic has done and it's impacting folks from all walks of life. And I definitely have to focus more on my immediate concerns and college will just, you know, maybe that's just not for me. And I'm also curious how many of those folks perhaps simply were disrupted in a way because of the pandemic that perhaps shifted their lens on the value of college because we had already been talking about the vo the value of college. Jeff, on the show previously, we talked about how many folks have gone to earn a four-year degree and then change their mind and then start over at the junior college. And I think like with educators and like with folks from all walks of life, the pandemic really forced us to really reflect on our purpose and reflect on our thoughts about the future. Also, you know, as a teacher of seniors, I know that this virtual school year that we have had has resulted in part in fewer conversations with my students on an individual level about their college options and about FAFSA. Normally in between periods, during transitions within the class, like individual students, I'm like asking them for updates, like, all right, so did you submit this? Did you submit that? What are your options? What are you thinking about? And a lot of that hasn't been able to happen in the virtual space, not in the same way. So I also wonder if this drop in applications has to do with students perhaps just not having the, the immediate arms reach support and help to complete their FAFSA and, and start that journey. So time will tell. I hope these numbers rebound. I certainly do. And I'm very pleased that our governor here in California, so we're talking, you know, these numbers are specific to California. I'm sure we've seen similar patterns in other states, but in California, the governor's budget proposal that he released back in January included in there an item asking for local educational agencies, that's districts, that's uh, county offices of education, that's charter schools in certain cases, to ensure that each of their graduates has either completed their FAFSA or completed the California Dream Act application if they weren't eligible for the FAFSA or opted out. He's making sure that each student has at least had the opportunity to complete this financial aid form if they want or not versus just like kind of just assuming that like, well, every kid knew and you know, some did it, some didn't. So I'm looking forward to this hopefully new reality where schools are making sure that each senior has at least had the opportunity to complete the application before moving on with their life. Yeah. Yeah. That last piece you said, Manuel, I think is really critical. And certainly my, you know, the school I was principal of, um, it was a, a big part of what we did and, and, and sort of operationalized through one of our 12th grade um, English classes was you know, support for the college application process, the college search process, writing college essays, right? Um, practicing for interviews, and then also um, helping kids navigate the, the FAFSA process, which is, you know, challenging, you know, on a certain level, no matter what, right? Because uh, you're a kid and, you, you know, you don't know much about these things usually. Um, but also it requires a really intimate conversation between kids and their parents, right? Because it involves like talk about family income and family assets and debts and, you know, all kinds of stuff that like depending on you know, depending on the family, depending on the situation could involve, you know, new information that, you know, kids don't know about or could potentially be embarrassing, you know, for a parent who, you know, has lost a job or, you know, those sorts of things. And so, um, so it's not 
just a simple, you know, in as much as it's a form to complete, it's not actually just a simple form to complete. It's also a process of a conversation between a family and kids. And you sometimes even have, um, you know, students who, who in that moment or around that moment, and maybe this is less of an issue you know, to some extent today, but there are students who find out that they are undocumented or that their parents are undocumented yep. in that moment, right? When, when it comes to the college process because of the forms you, ha you, know, you have to complete. And um, that can be its own unsettling you know, process for, for kids and families. And then you layer on top of that pandemic, you know, massive job lofts in particular for, um, you know, for a sort of a, a certain slice of working class America, a lot of like service sector, you know, workers, restaurant workers, et cetera, um, who, you know, who just lost their jobs and certainly have not, you know, for the most part regained those jobs um, or certainly haven't regained them with the same income that they had before. Um, you know, this, this was a, a troubling, con you know, concoction of ingredients that I think it's not surprising at all that that class, right, the sort of class of 2020, who was transitioning from high school to college last spring, saw a pretty significant dip. Um, it, it is also concerning, and I look forward to seeing what the data is down the road, that you know we know that kids who don't make that transition successfully from high school to their freshman year of college are more likely to not make that transition going forward, right? That there is a certain inertia and a sticking power to successfully making the transition from high school to college and surviving your first year, right? Um, that builds the momentum that helps lead towards graduation. So if we're seeing, you know, a, a persisting drop off there, it might really be a long-term indication that that's just a class of kids that's gonna, that's gonna be a bit of an aberration, right? In terms of having fewer folks who access college in the long term. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, one of the authors in, in the article mentioned that, you know, this decision to delay college for a lot of folks, that becomes a decision to not go to college at all. Because, you know, once you get comfortable with your your day-to-day -day experience, whatever it is, whatever you're doing in terms of working and, and just growing, it's even harder to like get out of that and then then start college. So yeah, you're right. This decision to delay college often becomes a long-term decision to simply not go to college. And yeah, and that, you know, that's big time. And I definitely, I'm, I'm curious, I don't know if you know, Jeff, but I'm curious if, if you've heard of, of states out there that do require their, their schools to make sure that their seniors have either applied or opted out for for filling out these applications. I don't know if California is the first or not, but to me, that's just like such a great idea because I think Ed Trust West and some other folks have pointed out that year by year, there's, there's roughly $500 million in federal and state aid that's kind of just like left on the table because a lot of folks didn't apply for it. Perhaps they didn't know how to apply for it. So I'm definitely curious if other schools or other, uh, other states require schools to like make sure their seniors have been presented this information before they yeah. just graduate. Yeah, you know, man, well, that's really interesting. I don't know the answers to that. I certainly haven't heard of a statewide, uh, you know, implementation of, of policy that way. Um, but as you're talking, that actually, you know, it strikes me as one of those things, Manuel, where we as a country just have a long and <laughs> complicated history of making things harder than they need to be for people to access democracy and opportunity, right? So the reason I'm saying democracy there is it strikes me a little bit like voter registration, 
right? The government already knows the they information, already have the information. <laughs> that they are seeking from you, yes. which is your name, your address, your, you know, right? Yes. Like they already know this, right? The state does because people have IDs, people have, you know, um, other, other information in the system. They file taxes, right? So yes. the same is true for the federal government with financial aid. Unless your family has not filed taxes, in which case, you know, then, then okay, I guess you, you need to get that information. But for the overwhelming majority of people in this country, the government already has the information. Yes. And frankly, Manuel, in the schools where you and I teach, the, the system also has the information because we have to do lunch form income verification, right? Right. So we know <laughs> already for a fact, right? Like the at least the um, general level of poverty that exists in our schools. Um, and so why can't we make this easier for folks? Why can't, you know, there, there be a portal that you log into that says, here's the information we have on you and your family. Is this correct? Click here. Okay, done with your FAFSA, right? Like, you know, I think there's a way, and I, I'm sure like logistically, it's probably more complicated than I just made it sound. So I, you know, nah, I get that, that sounds like something they could totally do. I mean, but come on now, exactly, you say one right? thing in one conversation <laughs> and next thing you're on social media and you see an ad for that thing that you were just talking about somewhere else. So they could definitely yeah. do something like this, but instead it's like, we already have all this information. However, go over to this other site and get your pin and answer all these security questions and then put in the information that we already have somewhere else and do that for yes. us, please. In order yes, for you to sign, sign an affidavit and read the form in English, even if your family doesn't speak English yet, like, you know, we could make this easier for folks, right? We could just make it confirm this information is true or, or you know, something that is remarkably yes. easier and just sort of gets everyone set up, right? Th th think about it this way. You know what else kids have to do uh, that same year, Manuel, is fill out their selective service card. Okay, Indeed. so it's it's pretty easy for the army <laughs> to come get you, right? Yes. Um, and to exclude you from being uh, able to access federal student aid, um, you know, if you don't do that. But somehow it's it's you know there's barriers up around the FAFSA. So I think there's a better way to do this. We're probably a long ways away from that happening, but um, you know it's a it's an interesting thought to consider. Yeah, absolutely for sure. All right, Team FAFSA. In the building. FAFSA. 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 All right, Jeff. <laughs> let's, let's go on to our next story. We have another grade for this week's report card. And unfortunately, it's another F, Jeff. Mm, mm, mm. Two Fs in a row, man. Well, what happened to give them all A's, man? What, what's going on here? You know what? You know what? Nah, man. That, that time is over. We have to make sure we catch students back up. Think of the learning mm. loss, Jeff. Think oh, of the, the learning, learning loss. loss. These two Fs show <laughs> that we need to double up on our math and English and other things because, I mean, come on now, Jeff. I'm thinking double blocks, reading and math, no art, no gym, no lunch, man. They need tutoring. They need test prep and tutoring. All of that. And, you know, during yes. passing period, Jeff, I don't see why students can't be logged in to a Zoom class as they go from, you know, one building to another on their campus. Yeah, yeah. That's, Maybe doing some, that's six some or seven practice. minutes of instruction that's lost every time students rotate classes. Come on, Jeff. It is. It is. We think, can do better. And bathrooms. Think of all the, the instructional time that's lost with bathroom breaks, Manuel. I think, I think we should close the bathrooms. 
I think we should install um, distance learning screens in the bathrooms. Uh, one <laughs> yes. way, of course, cameras off, of course. Yeah, you privacy can zoom check, but, from, uh, the, I'm, I'm sure from some, the urinal. Yes, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's some companies that would be willing to accept uh, the dollars to install that. I'm sure they would. All right, speaking of dollars, uh, this, case, this story here actually has to do with uh, dollars for community college faculty. And we got the story from EdSource from some good reporting from Thomas Peel and Daniel J. Willis. And I just wanna read like word for word how they open up this story because um, shots were fired to open up this story here. All right, the story begins with, quote, at a time of renewed focus on race and equity across academia, the nation's largest higher education system is saddled with a Byzantine and failing strategy to diversify its teaching ranks to more closely reflect its student body. Wow, how, how do they really feel about that strategy, Jeff? I'm not quite sure. So let's get into the rest of this, this article here and learn about this strategy, which... Um, doesn't sound like it's working out too well. So they report that uh, California's 115 community colleges, which serve more than 1.2 million full-time students, rely on a little-known system of state fines to improve racial and ethnic diversity among faculties. Among faculty. These fines are generated only when the colleges, which are organized into 73 districts, fail to employ enough full-time professors. Known as the Equal Employment Opportunity Fund, the money is then doled out equally to each district, regardless of its size or the number of colleges within its boundaries. Most districts avoid these fines and pay nothing, um, but individual districts, sometimes these fines can hit them hard. So, um, for example, the nearly half million dollar penalty that was um, imposed on Rio Hondo Community College District when it had fewer full-time faculty than required by state law. But community college leaders say that when the fines are combined and dispersed equally to the college districts, there isn't enough money to make an actual impact when it comes to hiring diverse faculty. Small, rural, one-college districts receive the same amount of funding as the massive Los Angeles Community College District, which has nine colleges serving over 200,000 students. Districts also are not required to spend any of the money on diversity programs. Debbie Klein, president of the Faculty Association of California Community Colleges, says that the funding system is, quote, a joke to the districts. Now, nearly 60% of community college faculty statewide are white, while 71% of students are from other racial and ethnic backgrounds, including Latinx, Black, Asian, and Native American. And a 2019 study published in the journal Race, Ethnicity, and Education found, quote, faculty diversity has benefits for all students. However, increasing faculty diversity may be particularly helpful in reducing academic disparities for students of color. So Jeff, we know faculty diversity is important. We are committed as a state, as a nation, to addressing racial inequities wherever they might exist. So this system here that fines individual schools for not having enough full-time faculty and then redistributes that money equally across all the districts, regardless of size, and they don't have to use that money to have anything to do with diversity. Um, what's that sound like to you, Jeff? What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> yeah, it, uh, I, I was joking earlier, man. It, 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 in an imperfect way, it reminds me a little bit of like EPA fines, right? Where, you know, the, the EPA fines ExxonMobil $2,000 for like a leaky pipeline in North Dakota or something, right? Um, which is laughable in the, you know, in the, in the face of their massive profits and also 
actually functions as a way to incentivize, perversely incentivize bad behavior, right? Um, now, I don't know that that's exactly a perfect analogy in this situation, but I think it's close enough that it's helpful to understand how ridiculous this is, right? That like a system that has an entrenched faculty that is not diverse uh, and not representative of the student body it serves, which is overwhelmingly students of color, um, you know, is incentivized to not create vacancies in its faculty that it could then fill with, you know, candidates who are more representative of the student uh, population because they get these fines if they are not fully staffed, right? And anyone who knows anyone who works in community colleges, I, I know a few folks who um, who do here in LA and folks who have in, you know, in, um, in New York City in the uh, city college system. Uh, similar kind of systems, right? They're massive, they serve tons and tons of people, and they have huge numbers of adjunct faculty. And I would bet, man, well, we don't have this data right here, but I would bet you anything that that adjunct faculty is vastly more racially diverse uh, than their full-time faculty are. And so in, in this situation, you actually have the incentive of the system that's kind of set up to say, keep your full-time positions full with the disproportionately white faculty you have, and then not create space and opportunities for faculty of color uh, and kind of pitting these two interests in a certain way against each other, right? Like, oh, if we, if we don't stay fully staffed, then we get fined, but if we're fully staffed, then we can't hire faculty of color, right? So I, I agree um, with, our, with our author here that this is a Byzantine and archaic or you know, whatever phrasing that was at the, at the, at the beginning of the article, Manuel. Uh, it's ridiculous, right? It's, it is a system that clearly, I mean, maybe some decades ago, this actually could have been thought of as like a progressive step forward. Um, but the fact that it doesn't even then distribute those funds equitably on the back end is just kind of laughable, right? So, um, you know, this is one of those issues where when we think about our higher education system, and we know, I mean, yes, we know we systematically don't invest enough in our community colleges as is, but we also know our community colleges struggle to serve um, our most marginalized students who are seeking higher education. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the key ingredients that could contribute to greater student success is representation and diversity of faculty. Um, and yet we have a system that, that is kind of entrenched in not doing that right now in lovely, liberal, diverse California. So uh, yeah, man, this, this is a fascinating one. I, you know, I don't know um, what the prospects are of a change in policy around this right now, but, um, but it's much needed because it's, it's crazy to think of that gap and disparity uh, being as broad as it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm kind of curious if those small, like one college districts, like look forward to their fine money um, that they receive each year, being that like they get the same amount as Los Angeles. So I'm sure for Los Angeles, it's like this, this is pennies, this is nothing. But maybe for those smaller districts, they're like, hey, let's get that little bonus check that supposed to be for diversity, but we don't have to use it for that. In any case, yeah, the strategy, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, just frankly, like I don't quite understand it. I don't quite understand why it was developed in the first place. It doesn't seem to make sense. Definitely inequitable. Um, I think it started in the late 80s. So perhaps equity back then, I mean, people 
toss that term around nowadays and, and don't always um, act on it. But I could imagine in the 80s, even the term equity wasn't really much of a thing in education policy circles. Uh, but yeah, this is a problem and something needs to be done about it. Um, I really don't like when institutions, especially big institutions, use the excuse of like, oh, we can't find enough candidates of color. That's why we don't have uh, very many. But there was somebody in this article um, who who mentioned that at her community college, like when they put out um, a job opening for, or when they put out job openings for uh, various positions where she said the, the applications they receive are overwhelmingly white and they can't do much about it because of Prop 209, which we've mentioned a few times on the show, um, Prop 209 from the 90s, which basically outlawed any consideration about um, race and gender in, in hiring. So even if they do get a few applications from candidates of color, they can't legally take that into account when making their hiring decision, which unfortunately voters... Um, had an opportunity to undo that back in back in um, last fall, and they decided not to. So we're still left with that system. So that's a problem. But I think this conversation about hiring diverse faculty, I think it's really in tandem with the conversation about educators of color in general throughout K twelve uh, in terms of their importance and in terms of the need to do more in terms of outreach, in terms of building up a pipeline, in terms of supporting, uh, in this case, faculty of color who are already in the system and making sure that they get the right support and the right mentoring to, to stay in there. I think those those conversations are are parallel, like together. And normally I think of things in terms of K-12, obviously I'm a, I'm a high school teacher, but here's, here's another example of the need for that because a lot of my students, my seniors, they go off to community college and diversity of their faculty is just as important as it was in 12th grade for them when they are out there in the junior college level. So yeah, I, I don't really have much of a proposal idea right here, but I know this thing here, this Byzantine strategy, like, yeah, that's whack, that's whack. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, well, well said, and you know, Manuel, just reflecting on today's Do Now, I'm happy that we talked about uh, two higher ed stories today, and in particular, two higher ed stories that are that, are that place in higher ed that is like, it's like high school part two, right? It's the yep. your first year of college, filling out the FAFSA and making that transition. Or it's many folks who go from high school to a community college to like find a path forward in their post-secondary education. And in this day and age where post-secondary ed is so critical to success, I, you know, I think we have to think more and more about you know, sort of grade 13, 14, 15, uh, you know, as being a, um, you know, a, a universal part of students' experience, the same way we think of K to 12, right? So, yep. um, so glad we got to, to dive in on some, some higher ed news today. Indeed. Shout out to all of our listeners who work at the, the higher ed level, particularly at the community college level. Shout out to y'all. Y'all are, y'all are true education heroes, even though we don't talk about y'all enough. I, I acknowledge that. All right, folks, up next, we have a seminar talking about STEM. And specifically, um, we're going to be talking to a teacher who works at the middle school level. All right, so stay tuned. Kaya Brown coming up next on the seminar. Hey, folks, thanks so much for watching All the Above. We appreciate everyone who listens or watches our show. And it has been a year, a whole year, since we had to leave the studio, 
come home and film remotely. And we had to build from scratch our home studios. Of course, that's not free. And we are so grateful for the support that has come from so many of you out there. If you're new to the show, you like what you hear and you want to support, that's great. All you have to do is go to aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There you can donate on Venmo or on Cash App. We are at AOTA Show. Or you can go on Anchor and you can subscribe. That means a lot to us because every little bit helps. Even a few dollars a month helps us keep making this show for you. Thanks so much, folks. Enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, folks, now it's time for today's seminar. And I'm so excited about today's seminar because this educator that you're about to meet is is phenomenally dope. And just in the conversations we've had before we hit record on this, I like, I've, I've learned so much and this, about her and she's just so, so great that I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, we have with us here today, Miss Kaya Brown. Kaya, welcome to All the Above. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all ours. Now, folks, um, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Kaya's background in education before before we get into this conversation about uh, STEM education and particularly STEM for our most marginalized students. Now, Kaya Brown is a mother and licensed K-12 general and special ed teacher. She's currently serving as a middle school computer science teacher in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but she's also taught middle school inclusion science and high school computer business and career exploration. These various areas that she's qualified to teach along with additional trainings that she's received, such as AVID and Project GLAD, help shape the way that she approaches education. Kaya works passionately to help students identify future career paths and gives them opportunities to develop a strong STEM background with hopes that she's cultivating the next generation of STEM heroes. Her work beyond the classroom includes delivering professional development for educators around topics such as STEM integration for CTE, computer science integration across content areas, and making STEM accessible for students with disabilities and our English language learners. Kaya volunteers her time with several committees and nonprofits and is the founder and president of the nonprofit Justice Code. Her and the team work to grow local and international Justice Code chapters that provide engaging STEM experiences for students who are generally underserved in the field and give them an opportunity to collaborate as global citizens. Folks, I told you, we only we only bring the dopest of the dope guests here on All of the Above, and Miss Kaya Brown is certainly dope. So welcome to our show, and I'm gonna hand it over to Jeff with our first question. Thanks, Manuel. Uh, Kaya, it is so wonderful to have you on the show with us today. And I think especially in this moment where because of the of the pandemic, we have all been thrust into uh, a context where we are engaging with technology uh, as a more core and fundamental part of our, our daily lived experience than, than perhaps ever before. And this is, you know, of course, true for students um, and their engagement with school, uh, but also true for many adults in terms of uh, their engagement with work and, uh, you know, the, the kind of poignance of talking about um, opportunities for young people, especially young people of color, um, to to find career pathways in STEM. Uh, you know, this is this is just a beautiful historical moment to to have that conversation. And so, um, our first question today, I think, is really going to start off with just some perhaps some cold hard facts about uh, some of the reality that's out there. We we know that um, the organizations in Silicon Valley. Um, have certainly talked a lot about the need to diversify their workforce. 
And yet today we have data showing that, you know, at Google, something like only 2% of engineers uh, are black. At Twitter and at Apple, respectively, the numbers are something like 5 and 6%. And those numbers are roughly equal for our Latino brothers and sisters as well. Um, certainly, there are more Asians and Asian Americans working um, in Silicon Valley, but the workforce remains overwhelmingly white and Asian and, and perhaps not representative of the, um, you know, the, the full spectrum of, of those communities either. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, first off, if you can just share with us some of your thinking about the kind of broader issues here and, and what might be done or what needs to be done in order to address you know, these, these gaps that we see and ensure that um, our young people are having the opportunities that they deserve in order to find a pathway, um, you know, for careers in, in STEM. Where do I begin? Yeah. So those, those statistics are alarming for sure. Um, personally, I think that there's a combination of solutions that need to be addressed. Um, I would start with teacher preparation programs. Um, I think that I'm pretty rare. I have a degree in computer science, uh, but I wanted to be an educator, right? Um, and it is really difficult from what I found for school districts to find computer science teachers or engineers um, that are able, that have the content knowledge, but also have the teaching skills to prepare students in a K through 12 setting. Um, and so I think looking at teacher preparation programs to prepare teachers to have a little bit more tools in their toolbox might be um, one solution. The second one is around policy. Um, every state in our country do not require computer science education in a K through 12 setting. Um, and so what we found is when students get to high school, if they've not already been to, exposed to computer science in their K through eight years, or if they don't have parents or communities that have exposed them to computer science, they don't opt to take those elective classes. Um, and so the data is pretty staggering for females that are in AP computer science classes, as well as persons of color that are in AP computer science classes. Um, and so taking a look at a policy and how can we get computer science um, and some of the other high tech fields as a, as a prerequisite for graduating, I think is a second thing. Um, and then another thing, and I'll speak for the African-American community, um, is around our community really encouraging STEM careers. Um, I know at least, I'm, I'm from Chicago, Illinois originally. So at least in my community, we knew who the athletes were. We knew who the rappers and the, the different artists, right? The actors were, and they were kind of our heroes. Um, and that's why I call STEM professionals STEM heroes, right? Because I think the change in mindset where our community, our minority communities really start to see STEM professionals as real life heroes. And we began to kind of circle around our students, our children, and help them to realize how phenomenal a career in these would be and how well paying they would be as well. Um, I think that those are three um, viable solutions for sure. Nice. And I like the framing of STEM heroes. And you've jokingly said before that your your passion is in in brainwashing your students, especially your students of color, to be the next 
STEM heroes. And I'm wondering, what does that, that brainwashing look like in Ms. Brown's classroom? Can you talk to us a little bit about your, your approach to, to teaching kids? Absolutely. Um, there's a, there's several frames that I look at life and education through. Um, I think most naturally my personal gift is helping to identify gifts in other people, right? Um, helping to identify what are some of your natural interests. And I always have conversations with people about their future. What does your future look like? Whether they're young or old, what does your future look like? How are you developing yourself? What goal are you working towards? Um, so that's just a natural part of who I am. Um, if a student says, well, this is what I'm really passionate about, then I support them in preparing for that career. Case in point, one of my own children right now is not going into a STEM field. He's in Barber College, um, but I am supporting him and helping him to be an entrepreneur, right? But those students that are kind of undecided, um, that have some skill, but they really don't have an idea about what career field they want, right away I'm talking to them about STEM fields. I'm talking to them about what type of lifestyle do you want to live now, right? Because if they can identify their dreams, the lifestyle that they want to live, then I'll show them some STEM fields um, or other fields that match their interests that can afford that can help them afford that lifestyle. Um, and so it is a joke that I'm out here to brainwash the world into becoming computer scientists um, and to go into STEM fields. That's a joke. I'm really out here to encourage people to live their best life. Um, young and old um, to kind of help them have strategic conversations around how do I how do I reach that? Um, but I do believe that technology especially is something that everyone needs. Um, so even when I talked about my personal child who is preparing to be a barber and wants to own his own shops in the future, I'm talking to him about technology integration already and how can he automate his systems, right? Um, and so, um, I, I don't think that there is a career that we can get away from where technology is not needed. Yeah, I, I just really love what you said there, Kaya. And I'm wondering, actually, if you can elaborate a little bit for us on uh, perhaps just a bit more about your why and what really drives you in this important work that you're doing to to cultivate the next generation of, of STEM heroes. Mm. Sure, that's a great question. Um, when I was growing up, so I am a third generation college graduate and fourth generation college attendee. So um, even though um, we are the children of slaves, um, I'm really proud of that educational focus in, in my own lineage. Um, and so growing up, you know, we asked kids, what do you want to be? And I said, I want to be a doctor because it made people smile. Um, but off to the side, when I was real young, I used to pretend to be an educator and I come from a family of educators. So off to college I went um, and I was a good student, graduated from one of the top high schools in my whole state, probably the nation. Um, and off to college I went pre-med. Yes, I'm, I'm fulfilling the plan um, and making my family proud. And oh my gosh, I got into these huge classes for science. They were an, an enormous population. Um, the instructors weren't that entertaining or engaging. And I found myself drifting a little bit. So trying to be productive, I would go to office hours. Um, my best friend and I, we would go to office hours and we would ask for help. And 
our advisor was a great person, but we were so different where we did not feel connected. I mean, we weren't, we weren't getting the support and the encouragement and the examples that really helped us um, to persevere. Um, and so we went back, her and I, and we talked, well, we want to be in the medical field. Let's do nursing. And we went and we interviewed with the nursing department. And the head of that nursing department talked to us about how competitive the program was and how unlikely we were to succeed. Um, and so, again, we, we felt discouraged. That was even more discouraging than the pre-med advisor. Um, and after a couple of months, our freshman year, her and I finally just tucked our tails and she went business and I went education. Um, and even though I always wanted to be an educator, um, I was a little distraught that that felt so hard, that college felt hard for a person who had graduated with honors from a top private Catholic all-girls school, right? Um and so some things happened um, and a little tragedy happened in my family. And, you know, you live and you, you get a little wiser. Um, I transferred schools and I stayed with education. And as all majors are, I had to take computer classes. So now I'm a couple years older. I'm taking computer classes. I don't really understand the content. So I go for office hours to get help. And that instructor informs me that their lecture are sufficient. and um, if I wasn't understanding the content, then I would probably just be failing the class. Um, and so years prior, when I was a freshman, that meant, oh, let me change my class or change my major. But one, this was a required course. And two, he encountered or she encountered, I won't, I won't say gender, but they encountered um, an older, a uh, little bit more defiant Kaya. Um, and so I was very respectful in that in that office um, hour appointment, but I walked away um, with righteous indignation saying, I'll show you. Um, and so what actually happened was I went and I taught myself everything that the instructor was not providing. And because I had been a education major for a couple of years, I had some tools in my tool belt now to, to teach myself the content, even though I didn't understand um, technology as well. And, and I said, I'm going to make that teacher give me an A. And sure enough, on my own, I made that teacher give me an A. Um, and the defiant, kind of um, rebellious part of me, when it was time to, uh, to register for classes again, guess what? I looked for that same instructor and took that same instructor's class. Um, and that became a pattern with me where um, I just was, I was just really ignited to keep I hope this is not too disrespectful, but shoving those A's to that teacher, right? Um, at some point, <laughs> my advisor would say, okay, well, it's time to choose other classes. You know, you have enough technology. And at that point, I just changed my major to computer science because I wasn't done. Um, and I also didn't like the fact that computer science was something that was um, so confusing and I, I really couldn't wrap my head around it. I knew that I am a, a lifelong learner and I always will be, but computer science, I needed to be more structured. So that's how I ended up with my degree in computer science. I never intended to be a computer scientist, um, but I think that I get, I just got tired of the narrative that a STEM profession wasn't for me, or, or at that time, a STEM major wasn't for me. So personally, I had to prove that I could be successful. And I graduated in, with honors 
with my STEM major, right? And so for my students, I take that same passion. I don't want any of my babies, and that's what I call my students, I don't want any of my babies to ever show up to college and be discouraged to change their course for the life that they planned or are kind of dreamed of because the professors or the advisors don't see the beauty in them or uh, or can't figure out how to cultivate what's already there, right? Um, and so that's the passion behind uh, the work that I do. I love that story, that right there. And uh, your, your students are so fortunate to to have you because it sounds like you are truly a fighter against this this system that has these these expectations over students and and oftentimes especially especially students of color especially um, our girls in STEM and and wow all right so and you don't only do this this fighting for your students in the classroom you've also you know been part of a lot of things outside the classroom now. Last summer, for example, there's there's already there was an established local nonprofit in in Albuquerque that um, serves or tries to serve the needs of of black students in the Albuquerque area when it comes to uh, computer science and and you know you did some work with them over the summer and you're in a, in a little bit you're hopefully going to tell us a little bit about your nonprofit and the other work that you do but first we just want to ask like why do why are spaces even outside the classroom important for our young students, especially when it comes to developing them as, as STEM heroes? Why are summer summer opportunities and, and the weekend opportunities that you are a part of, why, why does that matter for students? Sure, sure, sure. First, I would like to acknowledge Ms. Deborah Johns. Um, she is an, an educator, has been over an educator for over 30 years here in the Albuquerque area. Um, and she has an organization called the Pre-College Science and Math Program. Um, and um, she offers over the past 30 years a number of programs. Her direct audience is for African-American students or students who, who have um, come here from, African, from Africa. Um, and so that is her main focus, but she doesn't discriminate, of course. And... Um, I met her offline, not associated with her organization, um, but I met her at a training, right? And I learned about it. She learned I had kids and right away she recruited my kids to be in her program because that's her natural inclination. Um, as a parent, I was exposed to her program. Um, she she learned me a little bit and, and kind of recruited me to volunteer with her program. So the summer camp that you were referencing um, is usually called Summer Magic and it's a live experience on um, the campus of University of New Mexico. Um, and um, unfortunately, due to COVID, it could not be in person. And so I came on as program manager and figuring out how do we take this experience that has been a tradition in our community for so many years and, and adjust it so that it fits in the virtual environment. Um, and so we were able to um, have a virtual camp over, over a number of, of weeks. Um, the neat thing about her summer magic program is even though she prioritizes math and science, she also brings in the arts and the culture. Um, and so students were having um, stepping classes and they were having music classes um, and they were learning about um, black engineers and black professionals and things of that nature. Um, but the why, why is it important? As a parent, I went to her Kwanzaa celebration that she had prior to COVID shutdown. 
And so we're in this Kwanzaa celebration and her current students are there, the parents of her current students, but her past students are there, you know, families that have come back from college um, or that are living abroad or various places in, in our community and in our country. Um, and so she had a number of them stand up and, and talk about them. And when I realized that I was in a room full of black engineers, it was like, it was like I was floored to see all of this talent. Um, and of course their parents um, have, some, have some part in it, right? They come from great households. They come from great support systems. But a lot of it is the programming that she offered in partnering with NSBE, National Society of Black Engineers. They have a NSBE Junior um, segment. And in giving all of these years where these students were challenged and they were fed, um, and they were exposed, right? Um, and, and the fruit of her labor is astonishing. Um, and so why is it important? I think it's part of what I said a little while ago of changing the norm and the expectation for our community. Because for her program, not only does she have parents and educators volunteer, but she expects her students who become engineers or other professionals to also come back and, and um, feed in. And so I think it's just about representation. Yeah, again, just so powerful to hear your thoughts there, Kaya. Uh, really appreciate it. And tell us again, what was the name of, uh, of that teacher who you uh, were shouting out? Her name is Deborah Johns. Yeah, uh, Deborah Johns. Uh, big shout out to her from, uh, from Albuquerque, New Mexico, doing great work, just kind of laying trails for, uh, for you know, future generations of black engineers, uh, which is a beautiful thing to see. And um, Kaya, you have uh, yourself, I think, been uh, a person who is blazing trails in your own right. Um, for, you know, for young people to follow into a path where, you know, of course, not enough um, of us have. And um, I'd love for our, our final question here to hear a little bit more from you about some of the work that you're doing outside of um, just your, um, of course, your very busy classroom teaching schedule. Um, we know that you have, um, you know, you have taken on uh, activities uh, to support youth in STEM, uh, including a computer science club, including a tech student leaders um, group, and uh, of course have started your own nonprofit, um, Justice Code. So we'd love to just hear a little bit more about, um, about some of the work you're doing outside of the classroom to, uh, to cultivate uh, generations of, of future black STEM professionals as well. Sure, sure, sure. Um, when I talk with educators, especially young educators, I always encourage them to find their it. What is your it, right? What, what excites you? Um, so for me, it's clear um, introducing students to technology and computer science and careers um, is my it. Um, but, but I recommend that students, that teachers, excuse me, don't just focus on your classroom, but how else are you gonna be a teacher leader on your campus and for your district and the community that you serve? Um, and so that's, that's what I've decided to do. Um, there's a couple of initiatives that I ask permission from my administration. Um, I'm fortunate to have a very supportive and innovative thinking administration. Um, and so they allowed us to start um, 
an initiative, CS for All, right? CS for All is not my thing. It came, um, I forget her name, but uh, she's originally from Chicago Public School. Um, she was working when she started spreading the C for, CS for All, as far as I recall. Um, so we we started kind of just a, a council or a committee of a few educators on campus that I was meeting with around how can we bring computer science and more technology programs to our school. Um, a little bit about my campus. Uh, we're a Title I school, um, well over 90% Hispanic. The majority of my students are English language developers. Um, and so we're a bilingual school. Um, our students can work on a bilingual CO where they can take their four content uh, classes in, in Spanish, um, as well as have English language arts and English language development on the side. Um, and so just this rich cultural um, campus and so one way that we decided to, to bring computer science was doing a computer science club. So an after school club, even though it's COVID, our school has been our school district has been shut down for over a year now. Um, so our students are not on campus yet. Um, yet we have after school club for computer science. Um, and so that that kicked off right at the beginning of the school year. Lots of engagement with the students. Um, and the students are doing computational modeling in their computer science club, um, and they are engaging in some content and some ideas that I always tease them. I say, you're doing college work in middle school, right? So here my babies are, and, and I'm also a general ed and a SPED teacher, um, so purposefully, I'm trying to find my students who are interested in STEM or technology and have IEPs, right, or, um, or have just emerging um, access scores, right? So their, their dominant language is still very much Spanish or another language. Um, and, you know, a sprinkle of gifted kids here. So we're just really trying to have a variety. And those students, those babies are rising to the occasion and they are competing against middle school and high school students um, statewide. Um, and so that's Computer Science Club. Something else that happened for a number of years, I was thinking, I need to figure out how to cultivate student leaders around technology. Um, I got to figure out what that looks like. I also want students to kind of be peer mentors, um, but just in the back of my mind, not sure how I wanted that to look. So I went to an IEP, and um, in that IEP, I realized that the student that we were servicing did not have mastery over UDL, understanding um, universal design learning tools that are accessible to our district, like co-writer, snap and read, um, technology tools that would make learning more accessible for them in the online environment. And I was like, wow, see, we, we need to give some tutorials to these babies to make sure that they know the tools that are available to them. And so I, I use those two things. Um, my idea of student leadership and the idea that they need some, some skills right now. And so that's where LIT was, was birthed. And LIT stands for Leadership Innovators Team. Um, and so we have 35 students on my campus who purposefully are, are Native American, are Black, are Hispanic, um, a wide ar array of, of, you know, EDL or, or, or other labels, right? Um, and they are being trained by our district and myself and our team. Um, it's a collaborative amongst four different departments on my campus. They're being trained by us to become specialists in technology, to also become facilitators where they're leading workshops 
In fact, they're preparing to speak at a digital learning conference in New Mexico for educators. So they are leading for um, workshops for students and grownups. Um, and then also we're gonna begin next school year to start to transition them to be advocates, to learn about the digital divide um, and to be able to um, possibly go and speak um, to Congress, right? Or, or speak to the school board or speak to um, a community meeting, um, just where they have um, the understanding and, and the knowledge to, to advocate for themselves in their communities. So that that is me showing my proof, right? Like I always ask my peers, like, what's your it? Okay, well, come alive in your it. And you don't have to wait for an invitation. You don't have to wait for administration to say, hey, can you start this group? If you dream it, ask for permission. Um, and most likely the door will be open. Super dope. Now, you have a budding nonprofit, justice, justicecode.org. And, you know, we're going to link that under the underneath this episode. Talk to us about that. Uh, something about um, setting up different chapters nationally and internationally. Yes, absolutely. So I'm a woman of faith. So I say that this organization is God's organization. God is the CEO. Um, but this the name is inspired um, through my belief in God um, and, and kind of the format, you know, what is it that we're doing? Um, so to explain Justice Code, um, Justice Code focus, focuses on K through 12 students um, intentionally from marginalized communities. Um, we um, aim to give them enriched, um, engaging activities that they just really think are fun, but that are also teaching them some real technical skills um, and giving them some knowledge. We also purposefully recruit college tutors to be mentors and to be coaches for them as well as STEM professionals to be mentors and to work with them. So the STEM professionals are advisors to us and to the college students, and they work directly with the students as well. Um, our our um, blueprint is to kind of plant chapters um, in different areas. So we have um, some locations right here in New Mexico where we started to grow it um, and, and do our after school or Saturday programming with the students. Um, but then we also, you know, glory to God, we have um, a connection in Palestine. So we have 10 students in our pilot program that come to us every Saturday uh, virtually that are working um, to create global citizens, right? And, and my why, why, why do I think that this is important? Well, the students in Palestine are also coming from a marginalized community, right? But additionally, even if I was only focused on my population teaching um, the community that I serve, if they become a STEM hero, they're gonna work in a diverse population. They're not only gonna work with students that are from their community. So I think it's also important to expose them to the global community, to help them to understand um, a different cultural experience, to help them see things from a different perspective. Um, and so I think that the work that we're doing, um, I like to say we're tearing down chains of poverty because we're preparing students to go into these high demand, high career, high paying um, STEM fields. But I also think, and I hope in the back that we're also tearing down, you know, a few chains of racism and biases. Um, and so 
we have that connection with Palestine. And in the summertime, we also are going to start having students from Nigeria as well. Um, so for now, we have planted in, in Palestine and we're growing um, we're, we're planting seeds that will grow very quickly in Nigeria. And there's a couple other locations that we're having communication with that um, want to come along and have a chapter for Justice Code in their other countries. That feels weird to say, but in their other countries as well. But yeah. Well, that is, that is big time. That is big time. So if I'm understanding you correctly, on the weekends, you y'all have students logging in virtually from Palestine and soon to be certain other areas and also Albuquerque and together learning and growing as global citizens and learning about STEM fields. And that is just such a a beautiful picture that I, I know a lot of our listeners and viewers are gonna wanna know more or wanna know how they could perhaps support um, your efforts. So where can listeners or viewers go to learn more about you or learn, learn more about your work or learn how to support? Absolutely. Um... Our, our website is www.justicecode.org. Um, and so it's because when I first met you, you talked about, well, well how is social justice and STEM education related? Um, well, social justice is not just looking at the problem, but it's looking at what the root of the problem is. Um, and so that's that's where the name comes from, because I think the root of the problem is that we need to prepare these students before they get to college. Um, so they can definitely reach out to us um, and see what's happening on our website. Our email address is info at justicecode.org. Um, and on social, I am Miss Brown STEM on social. Dope, dope. Well, Kaya Brown, thank you so much for stopping by all of the above. We very much appreciate you and we very much, very much appreciate the work you're doing for students out there in New Mexico. Um, this has been fantastic, fantastic. Thank you so much. And folks, up next, we have our class dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, it's that time of the episode where we like to give shout outs to folks doing great things in the world of education. Jeff, what do we have for today's class dismissed? Well, man, well, I am happy to say uh, today's class dismissed is celebrating something that's happening right now, which is one of my very favorite uh, weekends of the entire year in my professional life. Um, I have the, the privilege, a lot of our listeners and, and viewers know, um, have the privilege of working for a fantastic organization called the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools that each year hosts an event called University Day, which in the, in the normal times, Manuel, involves bringing busloads of families from across uh, some of Los Angeles's most wonderful and most historically underserved uh, communities to visit a college campus uh, somewhere here in the Los Angeles region. And uh, it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful expression of community, expression of love from parents to see parents and grandparents, you know, bringing toddlers and high school kids to go visit, you know, UCLA or Cal State Dominguez Hills or 
Occidental is is just a, it's a beautiful moment. And um, this year, of course, things are a little bit different because it is being done virtually. But um, just an exciting, exciting moment um, all this weekend. So it started on uh, Friday evening. It's continuing today on Saturday and will continue tomorrow on Sunday. And the beauty of the virtual Parent College University Day is anyone in the world can actually go see it and, um, and get a taste of what this is. And so it is both presentations from educators, from alumni, from, uh, from high schools here in Los Angeles talking about their experience transitioning to college um, and uh, just opportunities for parents and families to learn a, a little bit more about what it looks like to navigate the college process. So if folks out there are interested, you can go to facebook.com slash partnership LA. Um, that's facebook.com slash partnership LA or just, you know, at partnership LA. Um, on Facebook, and you can watch the Facebook Live um, of the University Day events over all three days. It is, um, it's fun, it's amazing to see. You can see the comments in the chat of, you know, hopes and dreams of, of kids and parents for their future, um, you know, as they, as they look to college down the road. So, a beautiful thing. Shout out to all my uh, partnership family and all the amazing schools across um, Boyle Heights, South LA, and Watts. So. Uh, amazing weekend. Check it out online if you want, folks. Um, you, you will not be disappointed. Dope. Very dope. <clears throat> Reminds me of the do now that we had today talking about higher education uh, specifically. So very, very cool event. And if you're listening to this episode and the event has already ended, you can still see the video. You can still see footage of, of the event, I'm sure, um, over there on the Facebook. Um, but that's about it for today's episode. And we want to give a, a warm, warm thank you to all of our listeners, all of our viewers, all of y'all who support our show. Each of our episodes and, and links to all the stories we discuss are found on our website, aotashow.com. And if you really appreciated the episode and you're thinking like, you know, how could I, how could I really help them grow the show and keep it moving? You have multiple options. You could give us that five-star review in Apple Podcasts. You could go over to aotashow.com slash support and help us out there. Um, and all of your contributions are very, very much appreciated. All right, folks, that about does it for today. We'll see y'all next time.